Alrighty, so before we tackle the great St. Thomas Aquinas, I think it's incumbent upon us to take a pause in our journey and reflect. And this is going to be an occasional bit in this history of philosophers, which is history of philosophy. <laughs> yes, I have fallen prey to the temptation. And we will talk about some of the larger themes. If we look at the story of God, God is eternal. God is abstract in, a, in that he doesn't impinge upon our immediate senses. God is all-knowing. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is all good. God gives birth to man, but God does not force himself upon man. God gives man clear rules of physics through the stability of the universe and the evidence of his senses and in morality, and then allows man to be free to choose his own path. And the temptation for men is to choose the wrong path, and particularly to choose the wrong path in the guise of virtue. See, the devil will tempt you with mere greed, with the desire for the unearned that is the root of almost all evil. The devil will tempt you with fame, fortune, wealth, talent, and you are, you may be greedy for those things. We all are. We have the mammal side of us that is hungry for resources and doesn't really know a particular cap on the need for resources. The resource requirements, the resource greed, the resource need is infinite. We're like those birds that it doesn't matter how big the egg gets, they'll continue to try and hatch it. There's no upper limit to our greed. And that's fine. I don't have any problem with the greed. The greed is why we have civilization, which is defined really as excess resources. I mean, the fact that you and I can have this conversation is the result of a vast amount of excess resources. So excess resource acquisition and greed is part of our acquisitional and struggling and dominance-driven nature, which is why we're at the top of the food chain. So no problem with that. But the devil will tempt you with your own greed. And the devil will target you in the areas in which you do not love yourself, in the areas which you are scarred or wounded or were hurt by authority figures in your childhood or neglected. If you were neglected, he will offer you fame. And thus you will be the center of attention and everybody will want things from you. And of course it turns out to be hollow because if you were neglected but then you become famous, the people who want to spend time with you, who want to be with you, who want your autograph, who want you to be in their projects, those people don't love you for you, they love you for what you can do for them. So the problem of neglect, of people being interested in you for you, has not been solved. If you grew up with poverty, then the devil will tempt you with wealth. If you grew up as an ugly duckling or unappealing in the dating market, then he will tempt you with sex appeal, he will tempt you with male or female attention of a salacious kind. Wherever you have your wound, the devil will offer you a bandage to cover up that wound under which no healing will occur. In fact, the rot will simply go deeper, but he will give you a ticket out of avoiding the legitimate suffering of your past and say, well, no, no, no. You see, if you were depressed as a childhood, you can become a comedian as an adult. 
and that will solve uh, all of your problems. You don't have to go through the suffering of neglect, exploitation, or abuse as a child. You can use other people, right? Because that's really the devil's temptation, is to turn us into dry calculators of utility. If you want to become famous because you were neglected as a child, then you're using other people to avoid the suffering of neglect. And they're using you to avoid whatever suffering they're going. Celebrity worship is a form of uh, suffering. Generally, celebrity worship is associated with exclusion from social groups when you were younger. And so you learn to watch the cool kids at a distance and... Therefore, you continue to watch the cool kids at a distance, and this doesn't do anything to solve your exclusion because you are now watching people whose ranks you cannot possibly join. You're watching Nicole Kidman or or Jennifer Aniston or Sandra Bullock or whatever. You can't possibly join the ranks of those people. So you're still watching at a distance a social group that you can't possibly penetrate, which only, of course, increases your isolation over time. So the devil finds your wounds and offers to cover them up so that others can't see them and you can forget about them and you can just move on and use other people. But of course, neglect from parents is parents using the children. Neglect from parents is parents using the children. So when you neglect your children, you create in them a desperate need for you, which makes you feel important. And therefore, your goal is to never satisfy the need of your children because then they your perception is they won't need you anymore, they won't want you anymore, you won't have value to them anymore. I mean, to, to take a, um, a distant example, it's like the woman who keeps a guy around, she never intends to sleep with him because if she sleeps with him, then she has reciprocal obligations. He may not be interested in her anymore, but as long as he's wanting, she feels uh, important, she feels needed. So your parents used you, if you were neglected, to feast off your need for them. And then you go out into the world and you become famous and use other people as an attempt to stuff up the wound of neglect, but just covers it up and rot goes deeper because you won't turn back and deal with the actual suffering. So we are tempted with our own individual agonies and needs by the devil. And it's fine if you don't believe in the devil. This can be uh, the devil in the hearts and minds of others, for sure. And, But that's not the greatest evil that we are capable of. The devil who presents himself as the offerer of salvation for prior wounds without ever referencing those wounds. Right? The, so the devil won't say, you want fame because you were neglected as a child. The devil simply says, fame is wonderful and sees who responds. This is really, really important. Sorry, it's all important, but this is important with extra spice. The devil won't find people who were neglected in childhood and offer them fame and say, listen, I, I know you're hungry for fame because you were neglected in childhood because that is to identify the wound and the whole point is to ignore the wound. So the devil says how wonderful fame is. Right? There's this stupid myth, more than a myth, I suppose, of the, the coolness and the funkiness of Studio 54 in the past where all the cool people went and all that. And... and I mean, I write about this in my novel, The Future, available at freedomain.locals.com. The parties are for the destruction of innocence and nothing else. And so 
the devil simply fame is wonderful there's a red carpet there's people getting photographed there's people who want to interview them uh, fame is just wonderful fame is great and he never will make that association with neglect as a child and it could be other reasons it, uh, the neglect as a child is the most obvious one could be other reasons a vanity is is another one which but the vanity also arises out of neglect as a child because when you're neglected as a child you have to assess your own abilities which is a really tough thing to do really tough thing to assess your own abilities it's hard to know how good a runner you are if you grew up on a desert island you may be a good runner but you don't know how good a runner you are compared to others it's hard to assess objectively your own abilities and so isolation leads either to excessive insecurity or excessive vanity because you just it's like trying to shoot an arrow over a house to hit a target you're going to miss almost always so the devil simply talks about how wonderful fame is and then those in the hot pursuit of fame he will offer that to them in return for their soul but he will never make the association with childhood making the association with childhood is the best way to fight the devil which is one of the reasons why i keep making associations with people in their childhood i have a call-in show and uh, somebody uh, talks about issues they're having and we talk about their childhood and approximately a thousand times out of a thousand the source of their issues as adults is clear in the associations they have not made with the childhood origins of their adult dysfunction. And the avoidance of legitimate suffering is almost always the cause of that. So the devil will tempt you with the individual stuff. But that's low-level devil. High-level devil will tempt you with the pretense of morality. See, the low-level devil will appeal to your personal greed... The high-level devil appeals to your collective altruism, that you can do good for society, that you can help the world, that you can really help pave the path to virtue for a lot of people. And I knew when I started this project that I was doing a high-wire act over a very deep volcano. And I knew that the path to resisting this was to never tell people what to do, to never assert myself as an authority that people should reference rather than the ability that they have in their own minds to think for themselves, to present arguments, not conclusions, to present methodologies, not final statements, and to try to teach people how to think and never tell them what to think. That's the only way to resist that kind of temptation. So the reason that we're starting with this devilish backstory is... God births man, God is infinite, perfect, abstract, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-virtuous. God births man, and man struggles to follow God, and is constantly tempted by the devil. Now, the explosion of conceptual thought in the minds of ancient man was, I assume, akin to a kind of possession. And it created within man a multiplicity and a tearing tension between the concept and the real. Right, The real, tangible material, the concept, the abstraction of the tangible to its essential elements and stretched out to eternity and infinity, 
and what is generally called perfection. I know I made the case that the senses are perfect and the concepts are imperfect, but let's just go with the regular platonic world here of concepts being perfect and the senses being imperfect because that's where we're really coming from. So that first electric lightning bolt of concepts that hit the mind of man created a sense of eternity and infinity within the mind of man. Why? Because concepts are eternal and infinite. And we say, ah, yes, but some concepts only refer to things that aren't forever. The concept of life, life comes and goes. And life has not been around for the eternity of the universe. Life is a couple of billion years old. The universe is 13 or so billion years old. So what are we talking like a quarter, right? Life is a quarter of the length of the universe. So life is not eternal in its conception. And also the concept of life has only been around since the Precambrian age or whenever we can say that we got concepts as a species. But that's, I think, to look at it far too narrowly, which is not an argument, so let me make the argument rather than uh, framing the perspective first. So could life had arisen? Could life have arisen in a universe without stable physical properties and laws? Of course not. Of course not. If there was no stability to the carbon atom, if it changed from carbon atoms to helium atoms to water vapor to whatever, right, then there would be no such thing as life. There'd be no such thing as planets. Uh, there would be no such thing as fission or fusion. There'd be no stars. They'd, like nothing, None of this would exist. There'd be no place for life. There would simply be a, 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 a dreamy, dozy chaos of Brownian motion emergence and disappearance and transformation. It would be like uh, watching the static on an old television set and expecting there to be a 17-hour Berlinder Alexander Platt-style movie. Boy, there's an obscure reference for you. Eh, look it up. It's interesting. So, it's true that our concepts individually are mortal to us, that concepts for our species are very new, that life is only a quarter of the length of the universe, but life is born from... Life gives birth to concepts, but the only reason we have concepts is the stability of matter, and therefore it can be said that concepts give birth to man. Concepts give birth to life. Or you could say, if you prefer, eternity and perfection give birth to life. Absolutism, eternity, and perfection give birth to life. Because the absolute properties of nature, the eternal properties of nature, are required, the stability of matter and nature is required for life to emerge. So life originates from eternity and perfection. And what I mean by perfection is the carbon atom is always the carbon atom. The helium atom is always the helium, uh, helium atom. The hydrogen atom, which God is inordinately fond of, is always the hydrogen atom. Water always boils at the same temperature. Water always goes from cold to hot, from ice to liquid to vapor. Gases always expand when heated. Um, these rules, uh, there, there's no matter without gravity. There's no light without a light source. The matter is eternal, and it's perfect insofar as there are no deviations in matter. Now, again, you get to the quark level, you get to uh, quantum physics and so on, and yes, there's a lot of unknowns down there. 
but none of that matters with regards to the assemblage and continuance of life. All quantum matter issues resolve long before and equalize long before they get to the level of sense data. So the stability of matter, the eternal perfection of matter and energy is what gives birth to life. Life in turn gives birth to human life. Human life gives birth to the concepts that tie in to the eternal and perfect natural forces that gave birth to life in the first place or allowed for the birth to life in the first place. So if we look at that and we anthropomorphize the absolutism of matter is necessary for the birth of life. The birth of life is necessary for the birth of human consciousness. And human consciousness then is able to identify the eternal and absolute properties of matter, the perfect properties of matter, from the beginning of time to the end of time and all across the universe. We are birthed from eternal and universal absolutes. And we then give birth to eternal and infinite and perfect absolutes of matter and energy, the principles of matter and energy. So if we say that that which concepts describe perfectly gave birth to us, matter and energy, then we are birthed from concepts. We arise from concepts, and then we produce concepts. So the idea that concepts precede us, that ideas precede us, that eternity and perfection and absolutism and infinity precede us and give birth to us, is accurate in a very powerful and deep way. Absolute concepts, eternal, perfect, infinite properties give birth to us. We are birthed from absolutism and infinity and eternity in that the properties of matter have to be stable absolutely and eternally and perfectly for us to even have a chance of being alive. So concepts birth us. We then birth concepts in return, abstract and identify the properties of matter that have to exist for us to exist at all. So the idea that we come from an abstraction, the idea that platonic forms, that ideals, that uh, nirvana, that the new aminal realm, the idea that we are far less than concepts, that concepts are perfect and we are imperfect reflections. Why is this such a compelling idea? Because it gets at a very, very real truth about where we came from. Without those principles, without those abstractions, without those eternal perfections of matter, or the eternally perfect behavior of matter in that it does not deviate from physical laws, without those perfect principles, we could not exist. So the idea that we are birthed by perfect abstractions is a very deep and real truth about our origins as thinking creatures. So when Plato says we are born from perfection, before we are born we are floating in the realm of eternal and perfect forms, and everything we see is a mere shaky shadow cast from a flickering fire by those perfect forms. In a very deep and powerful way, he's absolutely right. And this is why it's so compelling. This is why it's so compelling. We are birthed from universal, abstract, infinite, 
perfection. Absolutely we are. Without the universal abstract infinite perfection of physical properties and behaviors, matter and energy, we could not be birthed at all. We are birthed from perfection, from absolutism, from abstractions. They are bigger than us because they preceded us. The physical laws of the universe and the perfection uh, of the mechanisms of matter and energy preceded us, and if they didn't precede us, we couldn't be here. So the idea that there are eternal ideas and forces and structures and concepts far larger than we are, that we are a shaky reflection of, that preceded us, that outlast us, and that are far more important than we are, is absolutely correct looked at it through this particular lens. And I'm not trying to do a distorted lens here. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm struggling to both understand and communicate why these ideas are so powerful. I, it, I'm now at a phase in my maturation as a philosopher, which is going to continue on, I'm sure, where in the past I would just be, well, that's false and it's crazy and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yes, I think I think the platonic ideals are false. I think they are a little mental, but... It's the same thing with the existence of God. How can something so wrong be so prevalent? Is there not some kind of truth in it that we can extract that can explain why it's so tempting for people to say, I am nothing, the concepts are everything? Well, it's kind of right. My individual life is an infinitesimally small fragment of the length of the universe. My physical brain is an infinitesimally small occupier of space in the infinity of the universe. I am vanishingly small in the scope of what is, but I can encompass all of that in my mind. Yes, it feels like the concepts are bigger than me. It feels like the concepts preceded me. And the laws of the behavior of matter and energy have been around as long as the universe has existed and will be around as long as the universe will exist, which to me is matter can't be created or destroyed, only transferred to energy and back forever. You know, when people worship the sun, they have a sense that the sun god gave birth to man. Well, it's kind of true. Without a sun, we couldn't be alive. Without our planet being in the Goldilocks zone of not too warm, not too cold, we couldn't be alive. The sun was around long before us, and the sun allowed our evolution. The sun, in a sense, gave birth to us. I mean, it's certainly possible that some of the matter destined for the sun ended up in the earth in the primordial frisbee soup of the solar system as a whole billions of years ago. We are birthed from eternity and absolutism and infinity. I've said this before, like you and I are composed of the exploding matter of stars that went supernova billions of years ago, which drew matter in the complexity required for human life. We are animated star stuff. So if my brain was the pulsing heart of an exploded star from billions of years ago and hundreds or millions of light years away. Yes, I am, an, I am a manifested fragment of eternity. That a giant nuclear bomb that burned for five or ten billion years, that a nuclear bomb had to explode in the distant wastes of space in order to give me the capacity to make this podcast, it does kind of feel like we are birthed from and participate in an eternity and an absolutism and an infinity that is far bigger than us, which will last beyond us, which has perfection relative to the wayward and inconstant 
nature of the human mind, which constantly skips and dances from one topic to another, backtracks, reverses on itself, contradicts itself, grows, and yet matter is serenely and beatifically perfect in its operations. The water cascading over the edge of a waterfall doesn't have any hesitation about its destination. It follows in serene and perfect and mindless passages and paths operating under an infinity of physical laws that require no enforcement whatsoever. Justice in the human realm is inconstant and often achieves the opposite of its stated goals, but the operations of matter are perfect and serene and no hand guides them. The free market needs Adam Smith's invisible hand. The warmth of a fire traveling to your fingertips needs no magistrate, no bureaucrats, no paperwork. It simply operates simultaneously, perfectly, universally. So that is where we are coming from. Why is the realm of forms, why is the realm of nirvana, why is the realm of perfection so compelling to people? Because it holds within a very real truth about where we came from and what originated us. The concept of life arises from the perfection of matter. Life as a concept exists within the mind of a person. Life as a concept outlives the mind as a person. Life as a concept preceded the development of life as a concept in that life preceded the identification of life from a biological abstract sense by human beings. We do participate in infinity and eternity and absolutism and perfection. It gave birth to us. And it gives us a choice through a mechanism we have yet to understand. So the idea that there's a being out there who gave birth to us, who is abstract and perfect and absolute and eternal, and yet gives us choice, is a very powerful and deep description of all that was necessary for us to be. So I wanted to make that point. The second point I want to make is the creation of life is not the imposition of morality. I mean, God, as the story goes, as the theology goes, God created all sorts of creatures and animals, but only man did he give reason, a conscience, and morality. The moral instructions apply to man and man alone. What does this mean? And the devil wants to rule rather than serve. And the devil rules over man by tempting man with the satisfaction of either earthly desires for resources and fame and all that, or his godly desire to do good in the world. So if we look at the struggle to define and determine absolute universal morality, what do we see? We see that the moment that you could convince other people to follow an abstract rule, that you gained power over them. I mean, if you've ever been in a public space, and most of us have, even if it's just a public forum or, or you know, Twitter or wherever, right? If you've ever been in a public space 
and have gained any kind of influence or even are just in a one-on-one debate. And it could be even a one-on-one personal debate. It could be a DM debate. You know that people will constantly deploy abstract moral rules in order to control your behavior. People will constantly deploy abstract moral rules in order to control your behavior. So when I made a minor complaint about a $2 donation, all I said was, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but, and showed a $2 donation, uh, people then uh, jumped, like literally pounced, pounced on this, and this is still going on, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 years later, people will still talk about two effing dollars or whatever, right? And, and that is because people don't want what I do to succeed, and therefore they want me to be scarred and traumatized for asking for donations. And they also want to have people not donate to me because apparently I just, you know, verbally humiliated somebody for giving the $2 that is all they could afford, like, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So they're trying to get people to not donate to me, and they're trying to get me to not ask for donations with these kinds of attacks, right? And you can see, I mean, you can see this in politics all the time. If the government has favored groups that regularly vote for them, a particular political party, then whoever criticizes um, those particular groups is met with accusations of bigotry and phobia and you name it uh, because you can't, you know, they protect their own and, right, this sort of tribalism is, is very common. And we can see sort of countless examples of this. Uh, that the moment somebody puts out a particular position, uh, everybody goes through their old social media posts and uh, uh, works to find any contrary position, uh, posts that and accuses them of hypocrisy in an attempt to undermine whatever position they're putting forward. And you know, maybe that's valid, whatever, but, but that's this manipulation of abstractions is really important. So if your friend is upset with something that you have done, is he going to say, I'm upset with something that you have done? It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It just means that I'm upset. Let's talk about it. Well, that's the real-time relationships approach that I talk about in my free book at freedomain.com slash books. But more likely what he's going to do is he's going to accuse you of various moral sins. He's going to say, you were disloyal. You didn't back me up. You weren't being supportive. You didn't listen. I did this for you. You didn't do this back for me. You're not reciprocal. It's unjust. It's unfair. It's like all this kind of stuff, right? It's unfair. I mean, when I was a kid, right? I mean, if other kid, if another kid got something more, like all kids in the known universe, I would say that's not fair. So I would be attempting to get resources through accusations of immorality, of, of unfairness. And that's, you know, how, how come he got a cookie and I didn't? That's not fair. Right? So you can't grab the cookie because the parent is bigger. You can't steal the cookie because the parent will get upset. But you can accuse the parent of immorality and get the cookie that way. You can play on sympathies. So if, <clears throat> if you didn't study for a test at school, you can pretend to have a stomachache. When you wake up, try and get the day off school so that you can study, take the test later. And you're faking an illness to play on a parent's sympathy. Because if you just said, well, I didn't study for a test, I don't want to go to school because I don't want to fail. They'd say, well, you should have studied for the test. This is a good lesson for next time and off you go to school. Maybe, maybe they would say something else, but generally kids will fake an illness rather than say they have failed to do a particular chore. And so you will say, well, you wouldn't send a sick child to school, would you? My gosh, where's your sympathy for the sick child? So you use illness and hypochondriacs do this all the time to 
uh, manipulate. There was the old, what was it, Red Fox on the old Sanford and Sons. Every time he wouldn't get his way, he'd pretend to be having a heart attack and joining his long dead wife and so on. Do play it. Well, you wouldn't want to contradict somebody who's having a heart attack, would you? So getting your way through manipulating morality is the higher devil. Now, there are people who cynically manipulate morality, like the kid who doesn't want to go to school because he didn't study for the test. Oh, he might not go to school because he's being bullied. There could be any number of reasons. But the cute who fakes an illness might be doing it out of desperation. That if I say I'm being bullied, the parent will say, well, you just got to go stand up for yourself, son, and off you go, right? While they go and get humiliated at work by their boss or whatever, right? So, I mean, it may be desperation in the only way. The only way the kid can stay home is to pretend to be ill. So I'm not saying it's always, you know, some horrible, ghastly manipulation, but we all have this temptation to manipulate morality for the sake of advantage. Now, if you can invent a morality that everyone accepts and that you speak for, that is the most powerful resource acquisition tactic known to man, God, or devil. So if you can get everyone to believe in this moral, these moral absolutes, but that you speak for those moral absolutes, then your word becomes their law. Your word becomes their law. And that is the most powerful thing. Human beings can't handle this kind of power, which is why philosophy that doesn't attempt or strive or work very hard towards or hopefully achieve truly the true definition of universal morality without exceptions is simply serving up power to evildoers to control humanity and destroy civilizations. And I'm not kidding about that. This is one of the reasons why I am quite critical with some understanding about the strictures and restrictions of the environment and why we know these philosophers generally because they served power and how hard it was to not serve power. I mean, there were lots of people who didn't serve power, who were philosophers, you know, better than me, and and UPB was probably thought of a billion times in the past, but it was too dangerous, the records were destroyed, the people burnt themselves, uh, burnt their works, or maybe got burnt themselves by fanatics, so it was very hard before the internet to be even be able to to do this. I'm just the guy with the technology and the voice and the ability, which again, I, it's not singular to me at all. UBB is not some glorious thing that only I have ever thought about. It's just that the technology exists where the gatekeepers can't stop. It's broadcasting. All they can do is ad hominem the source, right? They can ad hominem me, which keeps people away from UPB. And really, that's the major goal of the slander against me is, is to keep people away from UPB because claiming UPB while inventing exceptions for yourself is the most powerful thing that human beings can do. So the idea that you proclaim a false morality that is a mere cover-up and mechanism and enabler of your desire to rule, well, that's straight-up devilry. Better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Anyway, I fly as hell, I am myself hell. To rule in hell rather than serve in heaven. Well, to me, to rule among people rather than serve philosophy is the analogy. To analogy, sorry, to rule over people rather than serve reason and evidence is the great temptation. 
So the idea that concepts give birth to the corruption of concepts that is profitable to individuals, the idea that morality gives birth to the corruption of morality that is almost infinitely profitable to individuals, the idea that God gives birth to the devil, that the ideal gives birth to the create exceptions for you and your friends' moral exploitation of everyone else, again, is a deep and powerful and very real truth. The moment that human beings developed concepts, we gained enough control over matter to be worth stealing from. We can talk about 10,000 years ago, the explosion of calories available to people through agriculture. But the moment that we came up with concepts, then we came up with property rights, we came up with, obviously, land ownership. We came up with trade. We came up with currency. We came up with the rule of law. We came up with prison. We came up with all of these concepts that allowed for human beings to accumulate resources far in excess of the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which was always touch and go when it came to having enough to eat. The moment we developed concepts, we gained plenty. We gained excess. Now, the moment that there's excess, people will fight less to keep it. If, it's, if you're starving and it's your last piece of bread, you'll fight to the death because death will result if you lose the piece of bread, right? So if you have very little, you will fight to the death to retain it. If you have significant excess, you will not fight to the death to retain some portion of that significant excess because you can live either way. It's a simple calculation. Right? If you have $1 and you're starving, you're going to keep that dollar to buy whatever you can to eat. But if you have $1,000 and someone takes a dollar from you, is it worth risking your life to get that dollar back? Well, no, because you can easily live on $999. So the moment you have excess, A, you're worth stealing from, and B, you'll work far less to protect that. Now, going to steal from people individually is risky and dangerous because it's you're out in the country and... Accidents can happen and, and so on. So going to get money from people individually as a thief is risky and dangerous. There are dogs. Uh, there are uh, swords and knives. Uh, there are uh, angry people. There's tarring and feathering. There's being run out of town on a rail. There's uh, just being killed and being fed to the pigs. And all kinds of terrible things can happen if you go and steal from people. So that's risky. It's a risky life to be a thief. To be a hyena trying to steal from lions on a fresh kill pretty risky business. So what you need to do is human beings give rise to concepts. Concepts give rise to economic excess, which makes the target of that economic excess enormously profitable. So how do you steal? Well, you say that the good is to pay your taxes. You say that the good is to give your resources to the king. You say that the good is to obey the ruler. Now, the ruler is just a man, so that's not really good enough. Right, It's that old calculation that's put in the mind of um, a young Don Corleone in The Godfather, where in the origin story of Don Corleone, there's a guy who wants to uh, take a portion of his import business, a, a gangster. And I don't know how much, I can't remember, it's like $20,000 or whatever. And Don Corleone says, well, wait a minute, I, if this guy was dying, I wouldn't pay, pay $20,000 to keep him alive. So why am I going to give him $20,000? Why don't I just kill him? And this is, again, cold-blooded calculation and so on. 
could be considered a form of self-defense, but that's the sort of reasoning. And it's a very powerful kind of reasoning. So the king is just a man. So the king then has to represent a concept. The king has to represent a concept. Because you can kill a man, but you can't kill a concept. You can't kill an idea. An idea is intangible. You can kill everyone who holds that idea, but the idea has still existed now. If you kill everyone who holds the idea and you kill every written or spoken or manifested form of that idea, the idea is gone, but of course the idea can return to someone else. So you really can't kill an idea. So to obey the king, the king has to be a mere fragmentary manifestation of something much larger, much more virtuous, much more powerful. And the larger and more virtuous and more powerful that thing is, the more you are compelled by the logic of the circumstance to obey the king. So you want the king to be united to concepts that are infinite, perfect, all-powerful, all-moral. So the king needs to represent a collective, and the collective is the country, the tribe, the group, the whatever, right? The ruler needs to represent the collective. But the collective and the king's manifestation of that collective needs to be itself the king needs to be a manifestation of all-powerful, all-good, all-perfect, all-moral. And that is provided usually by the priests, although it can be that the king is a priest himself, but usually there's a secondary clergy that sanctifies the rule of the king with the divine right of kings that are appointed by God and to disobey the king is to disobey God and so on. So then you, you can kill the king, but that's like trying to kill God. You can kill the king physically, but then you're damned to hell for eternity and Right, all the Macbeth stuff, right? So the moment that we develop concepts, we develop plenty, but that makes us a target for theft. And how do you steal? You corrupt the concepts to create absolute universal concepts with exceptions. Right? So in the past, or in many societies, the gods talk only to the witch doctors. Right, so go real primitive on this, right? This is where the origin story is. The God talks only to the witch doctors. Okay, so why does God only talk to the witch doctors? Why not to you? Why is God only talking to the witch doctors and not to you? The witch doctors' pronouncements are absolute, but you don't have access to the source of their knowledge. You can't participate in their knowledge because it's not reason and evidence. You must obey them, their commandments. Why? You are a man. The witch doctor is a man. He gets to rule you. You don't get to rule him. He can make absolute pronouncements upon you that you must obey. You cannot make any pronouncements upon him that he even slightly has to obey. So you've got the same person, right? Two instances of the same species, human beings, with opposite properties. One has divine tendrils to the sky that create absolute commandments that everyone else must obey, but it's not reversible. And you can and, and the, of course, the witch doctors fiercely guard their abilities. And if somebody else comes along and says, no, I'm a witch doctor, and I actually have even more connection to the deity than you do, then the original witch doctors will almost always accuse that person of impiety, of, of blasphemy, and will kill that person to prevent any competition with this supernatural enslavement of others. So create a rule. Human beings can talk to God. Right? 
because if you don't believe that the witch doctor is talking to the deity, then his pronouncements would be just the ravings of a crazy person, particularly given the odd headgear. So the witch doctor creates a rule. Human beings can talk to God and then creates an exception. Only I can talk to God. Now, humanity can talk to God, but only I can talk to God. And you must obey God. You're not obeying me. Hey, don't shoot the messenger. You're not obeying me. You're just obeying God. So concepts which are there to liberate human beings from want and scarcity, but then in the creation of excess resources creates an exploitation opportunity to corrupt morality, to create a universal rule, and then create an exception for yourself. Create a universal rule, create an exception for yourself and your friends, but they're just using the same mechanism. We can just say yourself. You know, like Prince Charles III now, after the Queen Elizabeth II has died, he gets to inherit all of her money. Every piece of uh, inheritance or every aggregate inheritance over, I don't know, 380,000 pounds is taxed at 40%, but he's exempt from it because they don't want the crown's wealth to, to dissolve. Well, nobody wants their wealth to dissolve. Nobody wants to pay that 40% death tax in the UK, but, you know, you create a rule called 40% death tax, exempt yourself. Why? Because monarchy. Monarchy is a collection. Uh, it's a collective concept. It's an abstraction, and it creates opposite moral rules. I don't have to pay taxes. You have to pay taxes. I'm exempt from this. You, I, I can have this uh, unjust property. You can't. So the moment that we develop concepts, we then develop Necessary concepts for the production of wealth. In other words, property rights, justice, don't steal. Now, the justice is usually performed originally at the frontier level, at the local level. And usually there's not even that much of a formal structure. There may be a wise person or whatever, but you sort of think of frontier towns. There usually wasn't a, a government representative. There usually, I mean, there may not even be a sheriff, or if he was, he'd just be locally appointed. So justice is enforced at the local level. And justice is enforced because you only have thieves who will come and steal your stuff at sword point or gun point, justice is served in self-defense, justice is served in uh, a trial that is not state-based but local. And so morality is first instituted at the local level in order to protect property and life, which is why there are wear guilds, which is the price that you would pay for killing somebody, either accidentally or on purpose. So we first get concepts and morality at the local level, that makes us extraordinarily productive. And we know that because when you get currency and, and land ownership, the most productive farmers can bid the most for the most land. So the most productive farmers get hold of the most land, which creates this amazing excess. And this is, we, we knew this in the later Middle Ages when, you know, in, in the past, one of the problems with land ownership in, in Europe as a whole was that you'd constantly get this subdivision, right? So why would you send kids into the clergy and into the army? Well, because that way they wouldn't be landowners and you can't keep subdividing your land because it becomes ridiculously inefficient to, uh, to, to, uh, to farm, right? You get these stained glass slivers of... I remember doing a, a project in grade seven art class for stained glass and one guy saying, well, there's no way you could cut this. I had a snake or something. There's no way you could cut this slivery piece of, gra of glass and have it, you know, so he marked me down on that, which was fine, fair. But that's what happens to land. It gets all fragmented and sinuous and, and Mobius strip and, and it just starts to look like a modern art daub, right? You can't plow it. Uh, you don't know where the edges are. It's, it's pretty bad 
all around, right? So then you have to consolidate the land, and that means the land has to be available for buying and selling. You have to have currency. You have to have property rights enforced, and that way you can get the most productive farmers can end up buying up the most land, which produces the excess food that allows therefore to be cities and an urban proletariat and an industrial revolution, all this kind of stuff, right? So we get concepts of property, of currency, of morality, of don't steal, of, of the enforcement of property rights, produces excess, but then that corruption, the, 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 those morals, those universals, those universals, everyone has the right to, of self-defense, everybody can own property. The creation of value out of the unowned is the way you define property. And so you get all of this wonderful development of, of concepts, of morality, of abstractions, of universals, and then immediately or very quickly, it takes a little while for the excess to be noticed as something to be pillaged. But then what happens is you get people who come in and indoctrinate people with abstractions, with moral abstractions that don't serve themselves but serve the rulers. So when we talk about human beings being birthed by God, but then there's a devil that is birthed from God who tempts humanity into evil, and the mechanism of the tempting into evil is plenty, right? You can have plenty of fame. You can have plenty of money. You can have plenty of sexual partners. You can have plenty of talent. You can have plenty of recognition. You can, right? So God creates man. Man creates concepts. Concepts create morality. Morality creates plenty. Plenty creates the temptation to lie about morality, claiming it's universal while creating exceptions for yourself, which causes the transfer of resources. Look at this from a theological standpoint. This is what people are wrestling with throughout this time period. I'm not saying consciously, but this is what they're wrestling with. Look at this from the theological standpoint. God creates man. The devil rebels against God. Human beings rebel against universal morality. And the devil tempts people with plenty. And people are tempted by the excess resources provided by property rights and currency. To rule. And the devil says, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Well, ruling creates hell. And again, I write about this in my novel, The Future. Serving morality creates heaven. Serving morality is heaven. The desire to use morality to subjugate others creates hell on earth, which we're currently seeing in the world as it stands. So the traditional story of God creating man is man being birthed from eternals and absolutes. The idea that God gives man moral instructions, well, man develops moral instructions. The idea that we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden by disobeying God is we had plenty when we had morality. But then, because we have plenty, the desire to use morality to corrupt and subjugate and rule over man through the presentation of false morality, of morality which is universal to everyone else except you and your friends who get to do the opposite, and that's also moral. Now, how do you get people to accept a thing in its opposite? Right? You understand? This is the purpose of the higher realm. This is the purpose of the realm of forms. This is the, the, why, why is it there? What is it for? Well, it does talk about a real truth, but it's so incredibly powerful. How do you get people to believe the thing and its opposite? That everyone has property rights and must respect property except for 
the chieftain who gets to steal from you. That human beings can talk to God. Human beings are in the category of things that can talk to God. But only this guy can talk to God, and he'll kill you if you say you do. How do you get people to believe a thing and its opposites? Well, you create a higher realm of higher truth where opposites are resolved in a magical manner that can never be explained. That asking for consistency, while asking for consistency was asking to be hung or drawn and quartered or killed uh, or exiled, asking for consistency in the past was generally rather suicidal, which is why we get kind of tense around consistency, why people get kind of tense around UPB. So asking for consistency is asking to stay in the realm of reality. But staying in the realm of reality doesn't allow you to exploit people. You have to create a higher reality where opposition is consistency, and that way you can do the opposite of what you say, and it's still considered to be moral. Thou shalt not steal, but I as the king can steal from you. Well, that's because in the higher realm, it's not inconsistent. Because the higher realm is defined as inconsistencies that aren't inconsistencies through some unknowable, untransmittable, unexplainable, unreasonable mechanism. Magic. You would never fail a math test, no matter what answer you put down, if you could say, but in a higher realm, this is true. This is accurate. You'd never fail anything. You couldn't fail. If you said two and two make a unicorn, you could say, but in a higher realm, two and two does make a uniform. You can't mark me wrong because the higher realm is more important than this realm. Right? So then somebody else says two and two make a unicorn. You say, no, no, that's wrong. Two and two make four. And you say, but you just said two and two makes a unicorn. It's yes, but in a higher realm... The fact that I can do it and you can't do it is resolved. It's a higher realm. Don't question. It's just a higher realm. So a higher realm is where you put the moral opposites that pretend to be moral absolutes for everyone, but contain within them the moral opposites. And when people point out the moral opposites, well, you threaten them physically, but also in their own mind, you need them to police their own minds. You create a realm where self-contradiction is magical consistency. It's a higher realm. Don't question. Don't question. So, morality was originally invented to protect people when it was locally created, when it was just starving people with no, nothing to steal, nothing to to take from them. But then they start enforcing property rights and currency among themselves, and then they gain the plenty, which brings the jackals in, and the jackals don't want to risk attacking people personally because the farmers tend to be pretty strong and protective of their assets. So instead, you create a collective and you create a morality that only you speak for and you exile all contradictions to the higher realm where to ask for consistency is to show how stupid you are, how uninformed you are, how how unenlightened you are. And you create this realm of mysteries. And this gig, this scam is about as profitable a thing and it's perfectly mirrored in the story of God creating man God giving man moral instructions and God giving birth to a corrupter who uses morality, false morality, to rule, who gives you stuff but takes your soul. And the rulers get stuff but lose their souls. The rulers get stuff but it eats away at them that they've created the definition of humanity and put themselves in the opposite category. Dehumanization is the process of creating moral rules and exempting yourself. This is why there is so much. I mean, look at this ridiculous thing with the Kardashian sex tape, right? There seems to be evidence out there now that it could be that 
Kim Kardashian's own mother authorized the release of this sex tape, right? Now, Kim Kardashian has gotten everything that the... De- I'm not saying she made a deal with the devil, but I'm just saying if you follow this kind of... Maybe. No. <laughs> if you follow this kind of analogy, this kind of pattern, you say, well, okay, so she became famous because of a sex tape, and she is now a billionaire, maybe a multi-billionaire, I don't know. She's got, she's got all the money in the known universe. Uh, she's considered beautiful, she's, she's famous, uh, and she has every material thing that anybody could possibly want. And what, she's been through three or four marriages now, and it's just a wretched life. It's a wretched life. I did two, I just out of curiosity, I did one, watch one Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And, I mean, it, it's it's hell. I mean, for me, it would be hell. I mean, obviously for them, right? But But they got everything they wanted, and the result, I think, is is fairly evident in the incapacity to love, to maintain attachment, to, ma- to maintain relationships. And the price is paid. We take power from people to some degree also because we care about them and want them to stop defining themselves as ridiculous reptilian space alien categories of anti-humans while, complain- while con- claiming to be human. I'm not saying they are, of course, but that's the, the moral opposite. right? All human beings are subject to these moral laws I'm a human being, I'm subject to the opposite moral laws, I'm allowed to do the opposite, is very alienating. And this is one of the reasons why people who don't have empathy are drawn to this, but it only exacerbates their isolation, their lack of empathy, and their cruelty. When you define yourself as a human who is the opposite of every other human, it's going to have a profound effect on your psyche and your capacity to love and bond. We take power away as best we can because we care about people. The people in my life who exercised power over me, I asked them to stop exercising power over me. They refused to do so, so I took myself out of their life so that they would not be further corrupted by power. They're better people because I'm not in their life, because I am a temptation to exercise power over that they can't resist. And of course, if it's, if it's a parent, you're never going to be able to, you're never going to be indifferent to your parent, right? So they're always going to have some power over you. And so if you're an alcoholic, you can't keep alcohol in the house. You have to remove temptation in order to improve morality as best you can. I mean, I'm not too bad when it comes to things that I eat, but I just don't keep a bunch of stuff in the house because I know I'm going to nibble on it, so I just don't keep it in the house. Removing temptation is a lot easier. Prevention is way better than cure. And so we try to remove power from people because we care about them. My mother was becoming a worse person by exercising power over me. There was no chance she wasn't going to, and there was no chance I was never going to be influenced by her because she's my mother. So I had to remove the temptation to exercise power and further corrupt the soul by not placing myself in her path so that she could be a better person. And I have no doubt that she is a better person because I removed from her her wrongdoings, at least some of them. So when we look at these stories in the past, and not even the super distant past, I would look at this and say, well, this is false. This is an error. I'm at the place now, and this is part of, partly why I wanted to do this series. I'm at the place now where I'm saying, okay, but what is true about it? Things can be true while being false. I know that sounds like a paradox, but if you've ever listened to my dream analysis, which I've been doing since the very beginning of this show, dreams are false. They're not real. They're not true. They're not valid. They're not empirical. They're not scientific. They're purely subjective experience that masquerade as objective experiences in your mind at night. So dreams are not true. Do they have truth within them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed, they do. So to have understanding for the higher realm, why it feels true and how it's exploited to serve power and to understand 
even if you're a committed atheist, to understand why the idea that eternity and absolutism give birth to us, give us morality, and also give birth to the potential for corruption of that morality and the execution of the corruption of that morality is a deeply true statement. Universals do give us morality. That's why all morality claims to be universal, which is why you should obey it. But then to rule in hell, to rule creates hell, to serve philosophy brings heaven. I hope we can take the upward path. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Please help me out. These are a lot of very deep and powerful thoughts that I've been working very hard on. You know you can't get them anywhere else. Please help me out. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Take care.